This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper and it's lovely to have your company as we join our reporters exploring regional and remote parts of Australia. This week we're heading to the Red Centre where Indigenous farmers are growing garlic in the desert. They've been trialling varieties new to Australia to discover what's best suited to the local climate. We'll meet the retired entomologist who's converting a bush block into a breeding ground for butterflies, birds and bugs. And we'll discover how a tiny outback town is proving to be a perfect retreat for veterans dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. Certainly I'm a lot safer out here than I am on the Sunshine Coast. You have sirens every 20 minutes, half an hour. You know, you've got planes and helicopters flying over all, all the time. You drive out to go down to Cotton Tree for a cup of coffee in the morning and you, you sit in there and people bring their bloody dogs in barking. <laughs> but out here, listen, there's nothing. It's wonderful. Finding peace and quiet and peace of mind will visit that retreat for veterans and first responders in a remote rural town coming up. First today, life on the land is hard work, but it can be even harder for LGBTQIA plus people working in agriculture. For two passionate farmers in New South Wales, coming to terms with their sexuality was a difficult personal journey. But after coming out as gay, they found support from their rural communities. Keely Johnson has this story. John Wright was born and bred a farmer. He runs a grazing property at Woodstock near Cowra in the New South Wales Central West. I um, am fourth generation um, in our family being on, on this farm, which is fantastic. Yeah, I've just always had a love for cattle, love for the beef industry, love for farming. John developed a particular interest in genetics and breeding after working as cattle manager at the Trangy Research Centre for several years. For the past two decades, John's been breeding a line of cattle he calls Bluey, a combination of shorthorn, Angus and Simmental genetics to improve feed efficiency. You know, the power of feed efficiency is, is really quite amazing and what it can do within the industry and what it can do to your breeding cattle. And one of the really exciting parts is that, you know, high feed converting animals produce less methane. So that's really a focus we're really starting to get into at the moment. And there's a lot of people who are very interested in that area, obviously. As a fourth generation farmer, his passion for working the land runs as deep as any others. But at 28, he distinguished himself from most other farmers by coming out as gay. When I did come out, I had nothing but support from my family and my friends and my community. I'm sure there were people out there that weren't comfortable with the fact that I was gay, but those people just moved back. But he can attest the gay community in regional Australia can be hard to find. Yeah, look, I wouldn't call Cara the uh, gay centre of, of um, New South Wales or Australia. There certainly are other gay um, people around the town. You know, once I did come out, I, I certainly um, burn a few litres of diesel driving backwards and forwards to, to Sydney every weekend or every second weekend just to be in a community. But the draw was never strong enough to, to make me leave the farm. The aesthetics of the surround, the love of, of caring for animals and looking after animals and you know, that gives me so much joy that I'm, there's no way I'm going to throw that away for anything. Although it has meant finding a partner in a small country town is a challenge. 
it does not dominate my life anymore and I'm concentrated on what I do and trying to be the, a good person and, and contribute and contribute to my industry if I can. I just want people to be able to, you know, experience life as they, they want to and if there's people who are not staying in agriculture because they think they won't be accepted because of their sexuality then that's really sad and um, I think we're on the, on the road to improving that. It's an experience Hunter Valley goat farmer Alex Berry can relate to. Like John, he doesn't want to be defined by his sexuality. He's a farmer first and foremost. Come on! So when I first came out, um, I was worried that I'd be shunned. Uh, completely not the case at all. I suppose I've copped more slack of being a goat man than being the gay man. Alex and his partner Brad Dillon own a 20-hectare property at Seam near Newcastle, where Alex runs a boutique goat dairy, while Brad, an equestrian rider, manages horses. Alex is determined to not be defined by his sexuality and rejects the stereotypical image of a gay man. The LGBT community actually kind of is very a daunting place for someone like myself. I never wanted to be like what the iconic gay man was supposed to be. Um, it, it scared me. Being who I am is is a farmer. I'm, I'm Alex. I, I go and look after goats. I, I, I go to work. I work hard. And I think that's a big part of being who you are is not trying to be someone else. You just, just be yourself. The pair are both from farming backgrounds. Their parents owned neighbouring dairy farms in the Hunter Valley. So back in 2007, my family basically um, were in drought. So we had to make a sustainable turnover. And so after a few uh, crunching numbers, my family came up with the idea and they said, yes, let's go and milk goats. And since then they've sold the family farm and um, my partner and myself, we uh, bought a small little acreage here in Siam and we have 50 acres and we have a little boutique goat dairy. Initially, Alex was milking 200 goats, but has since downsized to focus on breeding and judging. I had an opportunity to go to America and I jumped at that chance. And basically, I fell in love with a breed called Lamarches. They're an earless breed and we finally bought our first um, genetic material and uh, we finally got them here to Australia. So they're, they're higher in casein protein. So we get more yield of product. So instead of milking 200 goats, I only have to milk 20. And the cheesemaker gets the, the right amount of product to then on sell at farmer's markets. Yeah, no, they all need to be brought up and drenched and vaccinated. Yeah, they're looking good, but. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. The, um, Alex and Brad celebrated their 10-year anniversary this year. He says society is becoming more accepting of homosexuality with each generation. It's changed a lot in the last 10 years, I think. Um, and it's going in the right direction, obviously, but, you know, I, I take my hat off to those before us that had to do it a lot harder and, and be subject to, to hate. And it's, it's a tough gig to be, a, a, to, to be gay man or woman in, um, in any industry, let alone agriculture. But I think being subjected to a generic stamp is, is even tougher. The land opposite Bob Newby's house looks like any other slice of suburban bush. But if you venture off the concrete footpath and head down towards the creek, 
you'll find some rustic tracks and dozens of trees. When I retired, I thought I need to keep something, have something to keep myself occupied. I had been watching for a long time the decrease in habitats, the falling levels of biodiversity, and I thought, well, this is something I can do that's have a, will have a positive effect. I can plant some trees. I can try and restore a little bit of habitat, and because I was an entomologist, attract back some of the insects that used to be in this area. Here's another curiosity. Here, this is this is called ooline. Hello, I'm Michelle Gately and I'm walking with Bob Newby through this patch of bush near Mount Archer on the outskirts of the central Queensland city of Rockhampton. The trees here are all in varying stages of growth and they all have identification tags too. Over the past 10 years, Bob Newby has collected unique and threatened tree species to plant in this bush plot and they've all been carefully selected with the aim of attracting birds and butterflies. You may have a particular family of butterflies that will only feed on a particular family of plants. So if you haven't got those plants, you're not going to have those insects. More butterfly plants. This is a cassia here. This is a lot of the yellow butterflies that we used to see. But before he could start planting trees, Mr Newby had to clear away all the lantana that was clogging up the area close to the creek. Then he set about finding the right sort of trees to bring butterflies, birds and other bugs back to the area. They had to be natives, of course. They were preferably things that were reasonably local. Now, by that I mean they didn't have to just come from Rockhampton, but I certainly wasn't going to bring in a species from tropical North Queensland. So that was the first thing. They had to be native. I had a bit of a bias towards things that were unusual or rare or threatened and of course I also wanted things that were going to be hosts for the butterflies. Some of the seeds for the trees were gifted to him, some were won in raffles and others were provided by researchers. Now a decade on from when he started, Mr Newby has planted over 150 species of trees. The trees he has planted can be hosts for more than 30 species of butterflies. So far Mr Newby's seen about 15 of those species, ranging from large swallowtails to small blues. While some of those butterfly species are fairly common, Mr Newby said he's seeing them in more reasonable numbers, and he believes that's down to the more favourable habitat. It has been a slow and steady process though. Particularly during the drought, it was pretty trying I think I got to the stage where I wondered what I was doing because I was having to hand cart water um, to where the new plants were growing in and in fact initially that limited how far I was prepared to extend my activities. The limitation in the early stages is keeping the weeds under control. I plant plants nearly every day, uh, plant every day just about um, and I think that, that has been part of the success of the project in that I didn't plant thousands of trees to begin with and then just walk away, which so often happens with revegetation projects. It's the follow-up that really is the key to some of these projects. So my approach has been very gradual. I sort of clear a small area, put in some native plants, get them established, maintain it and keep the weeds down and then I'll sort of push out from there. Mr Newby hopes his native regeneration project can be a bit of a model for what other communities and groups could achieve.
When you go and talk to young school groups, you realise there is a real enthusiasm out there for doing things related to the environment. Um, the new generation really are quite switched on about the environment, whereas people my age, less so. I think we took it for granted. And there's a real scope there to do things with school groups and other community type groups. But quite often you need something, someone to sort of sponsor those groups and, and get it going. So you need the local land care group to sort of take them under their wing or something like that. Now, if you're not quite up to the task of restoring your own slice of bushland yet, or you live somewhere where it's not really possible, don't worry. Mr Newby says there's plenty we can be doing in our own backyards, no matter where we live. Well, one of the easy things, I guess, is to, first of all, try and grow native plants, which are going to encourage other animals and plants. And one of the popular movements at the moment is to plant native plants that will attract in butterflies and attract in birds particularly. Um, the small birds in Australia have been decimated over the last hundred years and we're only now realising that the insects, because they were fairly small, are also disappearing on a very large scale. Now if you live in a small suburban backyard you can plant native plants, little bushes that are going to attract in butterflies because if you haven't got the host, you're not going to get the butterflies. And on a slightly bigger scale, you can start planting things that are going to attract in small birds because at the moment, we're missing a lot of the small birds because there's just not the food there for them. Bob Newby, a retired entomologist from Rockhampton in central Queensland. He took Michelle Gately for a walk through a bush block where he's growing native plants to attract birds and butterflies. You can see more on that story, including photos of some of his plantings. You'll find those online at the RN website, abc.net.au slash rn. Hit the Programs tab to find a big country. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN. Still to come, how growing garlic in the red sandy soils of central Australia could provide a path to paid work for local Indigenous farmers and getting away from it all, the veterans and first responders supporting each other at a remote retreat in western Queensland. It's about as outback as it gets. Welcome to Adelaide. Come into our unique gate. But nestled in the remote town of Adavale in southwest Queensland is a place of refuge for veterans and first responders. Well, the uprights here are Gidji. The white ants don't like that. G'day, I'm Dan Prosser, and I'm visiting Ted Robinson at this retreat that he helped establish in the small outback town of Adavale. It's about a thousand kilometres west of Brisbane and far removed from the hustle and bustle of city life. Vietnam veteran Ted Robinson's first encounter with the hut that would become the heart of the Adavale Veterans Retreat was unusual to say the least. In the early days a few veterans from the Sunshine Coast were in a group heading out to the Birdsville races and um, we camped across the Blackwater Creek and a few of us came into the Adavale Hotel that night. They were telling us about the old hut down the street that we could buy for $10. So. Next morning with hangovers, we came down and had a look at it. There was a car halfway through the wall. Back had fallen down, it stunk, it had horse droppings about inches thick in it. There was crap and garbage lying everywhere. And anyway, because our next stop was Quilpy, I went and inquired at the council. After a month or so, I finally worked out that they were sending a rate notice to an address with the wrong person's name on it, when in actual fact, years before, they'd resumed it for non-payment of rates and they owned it. 
So we offered them $100 that sits on two blocks, $100 a block, and we said we'd do the, the transfer, and they said, yep, that sounds good to us. <laughs> that was at the turn of the millennium. But in the past few years, the addition of dongers for accommodation has transformed the retreat into a place where Ted says the mind and body can rest and heal, particularly for those with post-traumatic stress disorder. When I first used to come out here, sometimes I'd be lying in bed at 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. Next minute you've got a cattle truck a driver around the back and they, come on, get out of bed, get out of bed. No, I don't want to get it. Get out of bed, get in here, come on. We're going to go and get some cattle. You can come with us. I don't want to. Get out of here, we'll drag you out, you know. And that was the community here. And they're fantastic with me, absolutely fantastic. Uh, it hasn't always been rosy here. There's probably a reason that they said I couldn't work anymore. I don't think there's anything wrong with me. However, here the, uh, the community's forgiven me for some indiscretions that, you know, just comes with ingrained PTSD, serious drinking and the rest of it, yeah. Certainly I'm a lot safer out here than I am on the Sunshine Coast. You know, there's a, you sit in there and there's temptations everywhere. You have sirens every 20 minutes, half an hour. You know, you've got planes and helicopters flying over all, all the time. You drive out to go down to Cotton Tree for a cup of coffee in the morning and you, you know, you've got to wait, wait, wait to get there. And then you sit in there and people bring their bloody dogs in barking. <laughs> but out here, listen, there's nothing. It's wonderful. Ted says there might be 15 people in town, but the locals have embraced him and other veterans. It's a sentiment shared by Royal Australian Navy veteran John Francis. The, the people of Ada Vale are very welcoming. Uh, they love having the veteran community out there, and I think the veteran community love being out there for the peace and the solitude of the place. And watching that sun go down on that horizon and then watching a billion stars come out, you forget all about any problems that you may have. It's, they're, they're gone, they've vanished. Have you had any experience with PTSD? Uh, yes, I have. When I left the Navy, I was um, I spent time in the Victoria Police Force. So I've had a double dose from both the service and from the police service. And, and going out to Ada Vale has certainly helped and assisted that in a great many ways, whether it's uh, sitting you know, by yourself on the on Blackwater Creek trying to catch a, a yellow belly or just wandering over the old dump that's out there and trying to find treasures. It's a very relaxing, very lovely, tranquil place to be. Associate Professor Lisa Dell from Phoenix, Australia, the Centre for Post-Traumatic Mental Health at the University of Melbourne, says these retreats can have benefits for veteran wellbeing. Retreats like these we know can have some benefits for veterans' wellbeing. And certainly, anecdotally, what we hear is that these programs have been associated with positive and healing experiences. And whilst there's not a lot of research in the peer-reviewed literature, some research has suggested that these types of retreats can promote things like self-esteem, conflict resolution, and physical and social quality of life. So we know that there's some benefits for veterans. They also provide an opportunity for individuals to step away from usual life, as you were talking about, and to connect with others. And we know that being with and connecting to people who understand your experience, especially for veterans, can be really quite powerful. And these types of initiatives can connect people with social supports that they might not otherwise have. Uh, and social support is uh, very important when it comes to maintaining our well-being. 
Another advantage potentially to these types of retreats is that they can be a pathway to care for some individuals. So these types of events can be opportunities to engage people into the health service system, sometimes for the first time. So it can be the first time that a veteran might be talking about their experience or connecting with other veterans or thinking about the impact that their experience has had on them. But what we really need are some clearer guidelines on how these kinds of programs should be designed, how they should be run and monitored and evaluated. And we're just not quite there yet with those. In the middle of Australia, Indigenous farmers are working with the country's largest garlic producer to plant a crop that will end up on supermarket shelves. Hello, I'm Victoria Ellis and I'm visiting the Ali Karang Horticulture Farm about 350 kilometres north of Alice Springs. This farm was set up by the Centre Farm Aboriginal Horticulture Group to provide training and employment opportunities for the local community. It's giving women like Tisha Corbett and Sabrina Kelly a chance to try their hand at growing garlic. And for Tisha, it's been a big learning curve. Get to um, learn, like learn um, how to grow and how to prepare. Yeah, so it's been good learning on, on the job. What sort of experiences had you had of planting and growing things before the garlic trials? Um, I didn't know anything about growing anything. Sabrina, what are some of the things that you have learnt over the last four years of the garlic trial? What sort of fertiliser we have to use for the soil and also how much water we need a day. The program has also brought the community together to work as a team. For Tisha and Sabrina, it's important because it's an opportunity to teach the next generation. Yeah, it's good. Um, it's good, like for the kids to join in because they get to learn, they learn um, growing farm. and food, you know, and what's healthy yeah. and yeah, they're and growing. Yeah, this is also part of the future yeah? Yeah. for the children to learn their children. Yeah, I'm Joe Clark. I work in Ali Karan community. Joe is an Aranda man from Central Australia. He's the farm manager. He says the first years of the trial were hit and miss, but last year was good, and this year they're hoping to better their harvest again. It is a bit exciting when we've got a semi-commercial crop ready to go, and uh, if you would have told me that three years ago, I would have said, uh, yeah, maybe, but yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting to see the younger people jump on the tractors, plough the dirt, lay the sprinklers, and get an exciting three and a half hectares ready for garlic Australia. It, it makes my job worth worthwhile coming up to work every day. Well, good luck guys, let's, fingers crossed, we'll have a lovely season. Hello, my name is Nick Diamantopoulos, I'm the CEO of Australian Garlic Producers. Usually garlic is a cooler climate crop, this is um, our most northern crop. Um, all our other crops sort of start coming in late September, October, so to be able to have garlic coming in in August and to grow garlic literally in the desert is quite unique. What does that allow producers to be able to do? Well, what it allows us, it allows us to go to market and extend our garlic season. So most other countries in the world, they, they actually harvest garlic for anywhere between three, four weeks, maybe six weeks maximum. But to be able to harvest fresh Australian garlic for a five, six month window is just pretty well unheard of. 
And does that mean that Australians will be able to buy Australian garlic for longer durations of the year? That's the idea. The idea is to replace imported garlic and to have fresh Australian garlic all year round. And with our diverse climatic conditions, uh, we can certainly do that. And what are some of the challenges of growing in this climate and in this soil? Look, this soil is obviously very hungry. It lacks a lot of organic material. Um, but again, you know, it's all about rebuilding the soil over, over years and um, um, good crop rotations. Um, obviously, you can also get extreme weather. Um, you can get very, very cold conditions and you can get very, very hot conditions. Um, but having said that, garlic's a pretty hardy crop. And if you marry up the right variety for the right area, you're halfway there. During the trial, some centre farm workers, including Sabrina, had the opportunity to visit the Garlic Australia headquarters in Mildura. There, Sabrina saw her own garlic that she grew, boxed and ready for the supermarket shelf. When they harvest that first, second garlic here, and we went to that place, that um, factory, and they told us that this garlic belonged to you, and that made me happy. Sabrina and Tisha and the other Ali Karung workers are eager to sell their produce around the country. Maybe around the world, maybe too. Yeah. How does yeah. that make you feel? Proud. Uh, makes proud and I'm very proud. Yeah. Tisha Corbett and Sabrina Kelly planting garlic near Ali Karung, north of Alice Springs in the Northern Territory. That report from Victoria Ellis. And you can find more on that story and all of the stories on today's program, head to the RN website, abc.net.au slash rn. Look for a big country. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.